going to take a moment and uh, dismiss our Hubtown kids. Uh, Hubtown kids are going to be uh, Blue Station, three to five, Gray Station, uh, age six to fifth grade. The Bible says that things should be done decently and in order. That only applies to the adults, I assume. As they're leaving, I just want to draw attention to a few things very, very quickly. This morning, our, our children are going to be learning this truth about God, that He is worthy, that He is worthy, intimately acquainted or associated with this idea of worship or worthship. I want to draw your attention to that. You can find that little blip that's on the screen right now in your copy of the loop. Also, stuffed in the loop today, I just... I want to make sure that you, you, you see that is, is uh, the beacon. The beacon's a great resource. Uh, it kind of uh, lets you know what's going on a little bit in the church, what's coming up. And uh, I love it that uh, uh, it has a deacon spotlight in there these days. Um, if, you can, if you can check that out and learn a little bit about our brother Brad and the work that he's doing here at Hagerstown Church. If you're new around here, I just want to tell you I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, it's so good to see each and every one of you, whether this is the first time that you're here or the, the hundredth time or the 400th time, I'm really glad to see each and every one of you, and I'm privileged to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be opening the Scriptures up to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, that's totally okay. Uh, I would, you're welcome to bring your own, but if you didn't bring one today, you can just use the black hardback Bible that's sitting right in front of you uh, in the pew back in front of you. That's the one I'm using today, and so I can tell you what page it's found on if you are new to using the Scriptures and looking through the Bible. It's on page 1,197. 1,197. It's, oh, it's so important that uh, you know that the things that I have to say this morning are not from me, but they're literally God's word right here. Uh, they're a light unto our feet, a, you know, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. And together today, we hope that God will shine some light on our path, not through my words, you know, but through God's words. And so we're going to open this scripture up and see what the Lord has for us today. And so Hebrews chapter 12 uh, there on page 1197, we're going to start reading in verse 18, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, which is there right above the big 13, okay? So here's what the scriptures have to say for us. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less 
Will we escape if we neglect him or reject him who warns from heaven? At the same time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, as we do every week, we just stop after we read your scriptures and we submit ourselves before them. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us. Father, that the words that are spoken would be helpful. That they would not obscure Jesus, but that they would lift him high. Father, we pray that the sermon that is about to be preached would be better because you have worked in it right now and that you've even guarded our ears and guarded our minds and led our hearts. This is our prayer and our hope, and we, Father, ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen. I want to give you a main idea this morning. If you're taking notes, it'll be up on the screen. The main idea of this text is not a, a new one. It's not something that's been foreign to us, even probably before we came to the book of Hebrews. But it's this idea that Jesus, our mediator, has secured for us a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. I love this idea of what Jesus has secured for us cannot be shaken. We've already looked at the story, the context of this first century group of people that received this book. Things were being ripped out of their hands, the deeds to their homes, the trinkets, their belongings, things that they needed even in their livelihood, maybe even some of their family members taken from them. And the preacher here, the writer of this sermon of Hebrews is saying, hey, so much of what you have here on earth is gonna be taken from you. It'll burn up one day anyway. But you know what will never be taken from you? The kingdom that has been afforded to you, the door that has been opened for you by Jesus Christ, our mediator. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. As we walk through this text this morning and we kind of think about this main idea, I wanna just draw your attention to a few things. One, we're gonna look at a contrast, one contrast. We'll move from that one contrast onto four observations. Finally, we'll look at three questions as we kind of zoom out of this text. As after we've worked through the contrast and the observations, three questions I want to ask you. And then hopefully that will help to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table together. Hopefully our minds and our hearts will be prepared to, to see Jesus even more clearly than we do at this exact moment right now. And so first, let's look at a contrast. In order to contrast, you have to have at least two things. And the first thing that's listed as a contrast is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Many of you know what Mount Sinai is all about. This is where the, the Lord had met with his people. There he was on top of the mountain and his people who had just been delivered from Egypt were gathered around and 
sort of looking forward to what the new era of, of God's people would look like and God demonstrates his holiness by giving the law there on the mountain. It's a very pivotal, pivotal time in the history of the church and in the history of God's people, but it's also a very, very difficult time. The way that it's described here in Hebrews is, is incredibly accurate. It's so emotive. It lists out seven images for us to help understand what it would have been like to experience what the Israelites experienced there at the mount, at the base of the mountain. First, it says that the mountain cannot be touched. You saw that. You've, you've not come to what may be touched. It's a mountain that cannot be touched. Why cannot be, can it not be touched? Because it really symbolized the holiness of God. Symbolize the holiness of God and really, if anything, were to be unpure or unholy and to come in contact with what was holy, it would be destroyed, punishable by death. This picture that the mountain couldn't even be touched, impersonal. The second thing that he says is that it was burning with fire, this mountain, Fire literally symbolizes the judgment of God. It's not a ho-hum, happy day. This mountain that cannot be touched was burning with fire. It was a scary sight to behold. But not only that, but it was covered in darkness. Covered in darkness. Maybe symbolizing the unknowability of God, the unapproachableness of God, even the fear of God, as often even as children and up into our adult ages, we often associate the darkness with the unknown and the unsafe. And all of these things, three, these three first things are sort of summarized with this word gloom. Gloom. The place where God is resting down, meeting with his people, is marked with gloom. There's no joy. There's no jest. This is not a happy place. As a matter of fact, it's a place of stormy. Number five, the fifth fifth thing is the tempest. It's the power of God on display. There's so many things in our lives that we think we can control, and in some way we can. Oftentimes, when things are working properly, we can control the temperature of our house or at what speed the fan is set on in our home. How many blankets that we have on our bed. Those sort of things are controllable, but when you're caught in the middle of an incredible, powerful storm, you come to grips with how out of control it really is. At least from your perspective. You see the power of God and the strength of God on display in the storm that swirls around this mountain. And there's a trumpet blast gathering attention, regal as it is. And along with the trumpet, a voice is speaking. And you say, well, what was spoken there on that mountain? Well, it was something that the children of Israel there gathered around the mountain couldn't bear to hear, even to the point that they begged out that it would stop covering their ears. In summary, what we see in this first side of the contrast is a fearful, impersonal sight. 
There the law of God is given in an unmediated fashion. And God invites the children of Israel to agree to this law, and they do. And they're unable to keep it. Maybe they even know it in that moment that they won't be able to keep it. I think that's likely the case. And they say, we don't want to hear any more. As a matter of fact, Moses here, the go-between between the people of God and God himself, it even says of him that he trembled with fear. And that wasn't a description of him. That was his own testimony. I tremble with fear, Moses said. Here on this mountain, we see the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the fearfulness of God's people as they encounter that. And that's one mountain. That's Mount Sinai. But there's another mountain here that's contrasted. That second mountain is Mount Zion. It's in verses 22 to 24. And now this Mount Zion really is a heavenly mountain. That's the first thing that we see about it, which is to say it's not a physical mountain. Sinai was a physical mountain. Mount Zion Zion is not a physical mountain. Now, you say, well, it is actually a physical mountain. Yes, but this is not what he's talking about. There is a physical Mount Zion. It's in Jerusalem, and really it has two peaks. One's called Moriah, and the the other is, uh, Moriah is where the temple is first built. It's the Temple Mount, and just to the south of that is the the second peak there, and that's where King David made his house. And that's where the the sons of David, the kings that ruled after him, that's where they set up their house. And so really, on the earthly Zion, it is a priestly office and a kingly office. That's what's represented when we think of this heavenly Zion. This symbol, what does it mean? Well, it's... It represents the mediating work of Jesus as a priest and of a king who invites us into his kingdom. But again, it's not an earthly Zion. It is a heavenly city. That's the first thing we see. There were seven descriptions of that first mountain, and now there's seven descriptions of the second. The first, it's a heavenly city. It's the city of God. The most important thing that we want to know about Zion is that this is not just a place where God is touching down. This is his abode. This is his eternal dwelling place, the city of God. God lives there. And I love that it says living. It's not just living in the sense that God is not dead. It's living in the sense that God is giving life. The first mountain is in many ways associated with death. Anything that would touch it dies, but this mountain is the city of the living God, not just the God who lives, but the God who gives life. It's quite a different mountain, is it not? And the second thing that we see is that thousands upon thousands of angels are there in joyful assembly. If you think about the differences between that first mountain and the second mountain, the first mountain of Sinai is really guarded by angels. Much like the the Garden of Eden, when after the fall, mankind was removed from the garden, and God's angels guarded that garden so that we couldn't come back in. 
It's a similar sort of sense there. The angels, the, 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 the Psalms tell us, were surrounding that mountain, on that, that Mount Sinai as God was giving the law. But it's so much different here. The angels here don't have faces that are fierce. They're not faces that would bring fear to the hearts of those who observe them, but these are in festal, joyful assembly. They're celebrating, much like we read about today. Why are they there and why are they joyful? Well, they're celebrating because there have been sinners who have been brought in. And so these two mountains are quite different. Instead of executing God's judgment on us, God is using angels to bless us, to declare joy, and even to serve and worship alongside the saints in heaven. Look at the next part. The fourth observation that we see of this second mountain is the, it's the church there of the firstborn. Those whose names are written in heaven, those who have even gone on before us. They're there first before us and they're there with the angels. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God together in this joyful, joyful affair. Not a doom and gloom. But you say, well, what about the next part? It says that God is the judge of all people and he's there on that mountain. Well, if you're to look at that actually in the Greek, the the accent is not on God, but the accent is on judge. The emphasis is on the fact that we have a judge And you say, well, that doesn't sound too appealing that God is going to judge us, but that's not necessarily what it's trying to say, what it's not trying to say anything, but what we need to understand is that God is our judge and he is not against us, but he is for us. He is our judge in the sense that he is our defender. Instead of bringing charges against us at Mount Sinai, he is our defender at Mount Zion. He's our judge. He goes on to say the spirits of the righteous made perfect are there. When you think about the joy that is described here and ascribed to Mount Zion, this heavenly dwelling place, think of the souls, the spirits of those who have gone before. Think of Paul who said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I love my Savior so much, and I continue to sin and sin. And he says, who's going to deliver me from this? And here's what we see right here. Paul is saying, I'm in that group here. My spirit will be made righteous. My spirit will be perfected. Isn't that a wonderful promise for each of us who love Jesus? And who love is appearing. We say we, we just wish that our spirits could be perfected. We just wish that we wouldn't be so encumbered and distracted with the sins and the idols of this world. And what we see in this picture of Zion is that there are many there gathered around with their souls perfected. Unable to sin. Able to perfectly and wholly worship their creator. And here's what I love the sixth description here of the second mountain that we have come to is that we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
This is perhaps the most striking description of that second mountain. There's been a new covenant that God has offered. And along with that new covenant is a new mediator. And this is the component that makes all the difference. In all of this enumeration, God saves the best for last to say, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Had Jesus been the mediator of the covenant there at Sinai, it would have been a different story. It would have been a different experience altogether. But here Jesus is the mediator of the second covenant. He is the mediator there on Mount Zion. And it says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a, maybe a confusing description of these two, particularly of this last mountain. And I'll save the explanation of that one for just a moment. But these are the two mountains that are set before you for contrast. One of doom and gloom, one that strikes fear into our hearts and would cause us to to run or to try even harder, but the second mountain is one of joy and invitation, one that is personal. It's a powerful, powerful image painted for us this morning. And so that's the contrast, and as we consider the contrast, I want to offer you four observations Four observations. The first observation is this, that both of these mountains are holy. Both of these mountains are holy. You've seen before, we've worked through Hebrews up until this point, and we have recognized that many think because of the grace of God that the holiness of God had to be taken aside, taken out of the way, that God's righteous standard had to be lowered for us sinful creatures. And That's a terrible misunderstanding. The off-putting and personal aura of Sinai was due to God's holiness, but that same holiness is not absent at Zion. Friends, both of these mountains are holy. The big difference here as we consider how they are approached is the mediator. One, there is no mediator for God's holiness. It's a standard impossible for us. The second is mediated by Jesus Christ who fulfilled that standard perfectly and even shed his own blood for us. You think about the the terror that was associated with the holiness of God there at Sinai. Think of Isaiah who when he stood before God, what happened to him? There Seeing God in all of his majesty and in all of his holiness, it says that he melted before God. And this is what the people are experiencing, trembling, melting as wax there at the bottom of the mountain because of the terror of God's holiness unmediated, but Zion is not the same. Both mountains are holy Second observation for you this morning is that both are speaking. Think about that. Both of these mountains are speaking. And what's really interesting is that there's blood said to be speaking and associated with each of these mountains. Sinai really is associated with the blood of Abel. You remember the story of Abel. Abel was the the first to be murdered. 
And what did the scripture say? What did God say? He says to Cain that the blood of your brother is crying out. And what was the blood of Abel saying? The blood of Abel was saying, vengeance, justice, the soul that sins, it shall die. Is that not what we hear from Mount Sinai? And even as that message is being spoken, the people at the base of the mountain said, we can't bear to hear this anymore. We can't stand up to that any longer. But what about this other blood? What about Christ's blood? Instead of indicating guilt, instead of demanding justice, Christ's blood, on the other hand, has won forgiveness. Instead of crying out for justice, it's saying justice has been satisfied. It's saying that the people of the new covenant that he mediates, that are there at the base of Mount Zion, ready to enter in, they are no longer guilty. They've been cleansed completely from their sin. Both mountains are speaking. Both mountains are speaking. And so there's some similarities between these two mountains. Both of them are holy. And both of them are saying something. Here's where they begin to be different in my observations. The first is that Sinai is unapproachable. Sinai is unapproachable. You can't step foot on that mountain. Why can't you touch the mountain? Because you can't even take the first step of a trek to hike up to the top of the mountain. You can't even take the first step. It's literally unapproachable. It's so far away, we're so far removed, we're so unholy that we can't come to Sinai. I love what one theologian says. He, he says it so well in this contrast as he highlights what the scripture highlights with the unapproachable nature of Sinai. This is what he says. Every aspect of the vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. The atmosphere at Mount Zion is festive, but the frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, and gloom fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, and the sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in a festal gathering. He goes on to say, the trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Sinai, frankly, is unapproachable. It's uninviting. In our hearts, as we read this language, we don't even have to really know theologically what's being said. We just know this, at least at first, that between the two, at one we are welcome and the other we are not. With one we are safe and invited in, with the other we are not. Contrast, though, Zion is approachable. In fact, the description is so personal and so joyful, so filled with grace, so inviting. 
Because Jesus is the one who opens the door in splendid hospitality. Zion is, in fact, approachable. Zion is, in fact, for the Christian, yours. And here's the best part of the contrast. The the fourth observation of the contrast is that Zion is unshakable. Zion is unshakable. The author doesn't simply say that it won't be shaken. It won't be shaken, but it says that it cannot be shaken. It can't be. And what is Zion, this unshakable place? Well, it's a kingdom. It's a kingdom that we have been invited into. It's a kingdom that has a king. Do you remember that king that rules in Zion? Not too terribly unlike David, yet righteous and eternal. This language here that's used in these final verses of chapter 12, of shakeableness, comes from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, and here's what the scriptures say. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's a prophecy here that what had been taken away from Israel would be brought back. The judgment of God had fallen on God's people. The land had been stripped of its treasures. And if its ability to worship God rightly... And God is saying, I'm going to pick up the globe and I'm going to shake it. And all of the things that have been taken away, all of the things that have been siphoned off that contribute to my glory and my worship, my doxology there in my city, it'll all come back. And what will happen to all these other nations? The nations that had stolen glory from God and from God's people And from that city, well, they would dry up. They'd be destroyed. They couldn't last. Their wealth and their fame fading into gray, ceasing to exist. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where in the end God says, I'll pick up the earth and I'll shake it and all my glory will come back out of these other places that it was hiding And they'll stop existing and my kingdom will exist. All the kingdoms of man, the work of Satan, the nations that have risen up against God, they'll all be destroyed. And the only one that will last will be my kingdom. That same kingdom that Jesus, when speaking to his disciples in Luke 12, 32, says, do not be afraid, little flock, For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. I love that. He says, don't be afraid. The earth is shaking. 
Your hearts are afraid, you're troubled, and you're a little flock. That diminutive there is saying that you're a, a troubled flock. You're a sweet and precious flock, and your hearts are afraid and you're trembling, but don't rest. Why? Because your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God Almighty, who reigns in heavenly Zion, has said, I will give my kingdom to my little flock, and my kingdom will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. It will never be taken from you. It can never be lost by you. It's something I have secured, God says, for you. Jesus even says, I go to prepare a place for you. When he left, what a comforting statement. He says, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a dwelling place. Our spot there in the heavenly kingdom, fully manifest, not now as it presently is in little outposts here and there as little flocks, but one day as a mighty flock in a mighty fortress that reigns and rules and lasts forever. I love the last phrase there in chapter 12, though. Look at that last phrase. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. This passage is the fifth and I think final warning passage in the book of Hebrews. This is the last time that the author is saying, hey, you need to watch out and be careful because if this doesn't happen, then this won't happen. And there's so much joy there at Mount Zion, but at the same, or Zion, but at the same time, what he says here is, at the very end of this chapter, is that our God is a consuming fire. And you say, well, that doesn't sound as fun as the description of Mount Zion. So where, where's the disconnect here? Well, here's the disconnect. It's not in the fact that God is consuming. It is the fact that God, or what God is consuming. And so think about that. The consuming nature of God, the destructive nature of God, what will it consume? The bright, hot, wrathful fire of God, what does it consume? In Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 24, Moses says, our God is a consuming fire. And why does he say that? Well, he's telling the people that God will consume his enemies and he will consume idols. And he's saying, do not be party to those things that will one day be consumed by God. And so when we come to this last phrase here, some of us honestly will be comforted by the fact that God is a consuming fire and others of us will be frightened and disheartened. It really all just depends on what you value most. You see, in this life, if you value most, 
the kingdom of God that will never pass away. And if now you are laying up for treasure or treasures in heaven, in the kingdom of God, those things will never pass away. They'll never be destroyed. They'll never be consumed. And when you read this, that our God is a consuming fire, you'll be filled with joy and hope because you'll know that one day there will be no more obstacles. There'll be no more temptations. There'll be no more idols for you to be tricked by. We're drawn away from Jesus by. All of those things will be consumed and what you love the most will shine brightly and forever. And yet if you're on the other side of that and you say, but I really, really love the idols of this world and I really don't look forward to the kingdom of God and I'm really not searching for that kingdom now, then when you hear these words, Fear should strike your heart because your future is very, very dark and lacking of hope. God is a consuming fire. There's a couple analogies that we could use. One is that of a crucible. The scriptures talk about all of our works being piled up and burned and Those things that are lasting will withstand the fire and those things that are not will be burned up. The things that we do for the Lord, the treasures that we lay up for ourselves in heaven, the crowns that we are awarded that we will one day throw at Jesus' feet, those things won't be burned up. And yet all of the things that we've done with selfish motives, Secretly or openly, all of the things that are distracting and idols and treasures of this world, they'll be destroyed. They'll be burned up in the fire. Maybe another way to look at it is to think of a gold miner. A gold miner begins to dig. I don't know much about that, but I've, I've seen some movies. He has good reason to believe that in this exact spot, there is the prospect of gold coming to him. He says, I know that the gold is here in this spot. I just have to do some sifting. I have to do some sorting. And so he begins to dig and he takes that dirt and he puts it through a tray, begins to swash it around sifting it around, swirling it around. The lighter things that are worthless are slowly washed away. And at the end, for that happy miner, what does he find in his tray? What does he find in his pan? He, he finds gold. The dirt passes away. The little bits of stone and Rock and gravel, they pass away. The the bits and blades of grass and bits of stick are all washed and floating away. And what's left behind is the weighty, valuable gold. And friends, this is the future. This is a picture of our lives. This is a picture of this world. Even now, even now, in small ways, God has begun to swirl that pan. And Christian, in your life, God is, as he sanctifies, as he trains you, he's washing away the distractions. 
the things that take away the beauty and luster and confidence of that gold. And they're being washed away even now in your life, and it's painful, but God is a consuming fire. He's a dedicated gold miner, and the gold that he finds will last for all eternity. And some of us are disappointed because we quite like that dirt and those sticks and bits of gravel. And in that way, we're not pleased with this text that ends with our God is a consuming fire. And this is a reminder that all the bowls of soup that we would trade our birthright for as Esau did, that they won't last. They'll all be consumed. They'll be gone. But the inheritance that Esau was promised lasts for eternity. It's a reminder for us Christian, we've begun to follow the Lord, and here the writer is saying, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Look what he's secured for us. He's the mediator of a greater covenant. And our God is a consuming fire. I told you I had four observations, and then I had three questions. Here are the three questions. I just want to get real personal with you. Not super formal, I want you to think about these three questions on a very personal level. If it helps to close your eyes, I invite you to do that. Maybe even to ask the Spirit of God in your heart right now to help you to understand these questions and really to be able to answer them honestly and with the light of Christ. The first one is this, the first question, what do you hear when you listen to the blood of Jesus? What do you hear when you listen to the blood of Jesus? And I'm not saying open up some sort of a textbook, a theological uh, argument here and give me a definition of what you should hear. I want you to tell me honestly. I want you to be honest with yourself. What do you hear, you hear, when you listen quietly to the blood of Jesus? What is it saying? You say, well, I'm not really sure. Well, what does it say typically when we come to the Lord's table? The first Sunday of the month, this church's practice is to gather around this table and to remember the the body and the blood of Jesus which was shed for us. And we do that in worship. We do that in obedience. We do that to proclaim the gospel. We do that to be encouraged and comforted. But when you consider the blood of Jesus, how do you feel? What do you hear? Has the blood of Jesus recently for you sounded more like the blood of Abel? Condemning you? Calling for justice? Crushing you under its weight instead of washing you? What do you hear? Here's what the blood of Jesus actually says. I love it. There's a thousand verses that we could look at, but Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, I love what it says. He's saying, because of these theological truths, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
But as a summary of these theological truths, he says, put on then you people who are chosen ones of God, holy by God, beloved by God. What does the blood of Jesus say? The blood of Jesus says to you, Christian, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And what's more, I made you holy. I, God says, made you holy. The blood of Jesus Christ says, I make you holy. And I chose to make you holy. And you respond to that, okay, all right. So you chose me and I'm holy, but you don't really like me, do you? You're not really pleased with me, are you? And the blood of Jesus says, you're loved. The blood of Jesus says, I love you. You are mine. If when you think of the blood of Jesus, you feel anything other than this, Christian, then you're not listening to what it's actually saying. It doesn't heap on us condemnation like Abel. It's a better word. It's a better word. Why? Because Jesus' blood is more righteous? Yes. A better word because Abel's is condemning? Yes. A better word because Jesus is saying, I chose you. I made you holy. I cleansed you. And more than all of those things, I love you. You love me because I first loved you. This is what the blood of Jesus says. If you've come to Mount Zion, don't hear in Jesus' blood what Sinai has to say. Don't hear what Abel's blood has to say. Christian, you have not come to Sinai. You have come to Zion. So what do you hear when you Listen to the blood of Jesus. I think that's such a good devotional question to ask yourself throughout the week. Maybe when you've made a mistake. Maybe when you sinned for the first time in the day or the 10,000th time for that day. And you think of what's signified here at this table and you think of the blood of Jesus. What do you think? What do you hear? I hope it's a better word. Because if you're standing out Zion... It's the blood of Jesus that's speaking. Here's another question for you. Which mountain are you standing at? Which mountain are you standing at? Some of you are standing at Zion, but you've gotten confused and you think you're standing at Sinai. Some of you have been forgiven of your sins. You've placed your faith in Jesus, and yet when you approach God, it's not a festal, joyful gathering. It is more of a doom and gloom, sort of a repelling. And I have to admit, this is something that I'm guilty of. This is something that I, I want so badly to recognize the holiness of God. But there's a part of my gospel that's unbalanced sometimes. And I forget that when I come to God, it's not doom and gloom, but when I come to God, there is a celebration and that I can celebrate with them. 
You have not come, Christian, to Sinai. You have come to Zion. And really, these two ways of of viewing relationship with God, given 2,000 years ago, describing far longer ago than that, is still incredibly powerful and accurate for us today. You're standing at one of these two mountains. Which one is it? Maybe this morning you're really coming to grips with the holiness of God for the first time. And there at the base of Mount Sinai, as you see the righteousness of God, you begin to think, okay, I'm going to try to climb this mountain. I know the warnings, but I want to get to God. And so I want to try to climb this mountain. That's what's happening in Romans chapter 10. That's what's happening in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. The preacher says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jews, the Israelites, is that they may be saved, that they may actually come to Mount Zion. Paul says in Romans 10.2, he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They want to know him. They want to be with him, but they don't have a zeal according to knowledge. They're confused, he says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Apostle Paul is saying these Jews, they're still standing at Sinai. They've rejected the righteousness of God revealed at Zion, and they said, we'll try our own way to climb this mountain to establish their own, and he says to not submit, which by the way, to try to climb up Mount Sinai is to rebel honestly against God and to not submit to what he has revealed in Christ, which is the righteousness of God given, available for us. But maybe you're not like the Jews characterized here in Romans 10. Maybe you're not trying to climb the mountain. Maybe you're like the Israelites there in Exodus. And what are they doing? Well, they're not climbing the mountain. They're running from the mountain. They're covering their ears up. They're frightened by the words, and so they silence the words. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe that's what you're even doing right now. As you hear the word of God preached and the word of God opened up and the light shining abroad, you cover your eyes and you cover your ears because you are afraid of this. Well, you're standing at the wrong mountain. You're confused. There's nothing to fear at Mount Zion. Only only fear at Sinai. Maybe you're afraid of failing and so instead of being angry against God or trying to cut him off and silence him, maybe you just run away. At any rate, you're not responding properly. You're confused. And that's why this is so helpful, this contrast. The holiness of God is not diminished in any way at Zion. It's only satisfied by Jesus, our mediator. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I I think I've been standing at at Sinai. I think I've been standing there at this trumpeting, doom-filled, dark, fiery mountain. 
And I didn't know anything about this other mountain. Well, notice this, that one mountain is uninviting and one mountain is inviting. And if you hear this this morning, you are invited to come to Mount Sinai and to come and approach through the mediator, which is Jesus. I think this might be the last, or the, 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 the most important question, this last question. And I want you to think about it on a personal level, and I also want you to think about it on a collective level. Not just you personally, but your own family. Your lifestyle. I want you to think of it in terms of your life group. I want you to think of it in terms of your D group, of your schedule. I want you to think of it in terms of as the church, our church, Hagerstown Church. And here's the question. Which mountain do you portray to others? Which mountain do you portray portray to others? We've moved past this question of which mountain are you standing at? And what are you hearing at the mountain that you're standing at? And now we're saying, when other people hear of the mountain that you're standing at, do they hear the description of Sinai or do they hear the description of Zion? Which one is it? Again, I think I've been guilty, and, and maybe our church has even been guilty of describing or portraying the mountain of God more like the Mount of Sion or, or, or Sinai than the Mount Zion. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Most famous sermon ever preached, most powerful sermon ever preached. Jesus says to his followers, to his people, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For some of us, we stand on the mountain, Zion, and yet we cover the light of that mountain with a basket. Does your home boom like Sinai or does it invite like Zion. What about your life group? What about our Sunday morning gatherings? What sort of noise does the neighborhood hear? Here? And no, I'm not saying we should put bells in the tower that play hymns, although I think that would be super cool. What do they hear, though? When they think of Hagerstown Church, do they hear, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Or do they hear, don't get too close and don't touch it or you'll die? Is it possible that you, Christian, or us as a church, that we are actually shouting condemnation and we're whispering forgiveness. Think of that. 
You say, well, we're a forgiving church. I'm a forgiving person. This is a forgiving family. And yet, while we talk of forgiveness, we actually whisper of it and we shout condemnation. What sort of mountain do we portray to others? There's so many ways that we could think of that this morning. And I think it'd be best to just allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart this morning. Instead of me trying to search these things out, or even you search these things out, I want to invite you to just take a moment and to ask God these questions. Ask the Spirit of God, which mountain do I portray? Do I portray the sort of mountain that says the main idea, Jesus is our mediator and he has secured for us a kingdom which cannot be shaken and he's inviting others into that? Is your life marked with joy? As we see in this text, is it marked with gratitude? As we see in this text, is it marked with reverence and not trembling fear, but reverence for a holy God, but not shrinking back in fear, pressing forward toward the promise and faith? Which is it? As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to really just connect these two texts, connect these two ideas. And ask you about communion. When we come to the Lord's table, does your Lord's table communion experience look like Sinai or does it look like Zion? Think of that. When you come to this table, do you, do you hear like clashing thunder, gloom, doom, fear, take it away only once a month? Or do you hear the blood of Jesus speaking even before the lid is lifted, I love you. I've made you holy and you're chosen. Christian, that's what, we, that's what this symbolizes. That's what we celebrate today. We celebrate, in a sense, at Zion and not at Sinai. So I want, I want to invite you to prepare your hearts those of you who believe these things about Jesus, who are baptized, who are following him, who are dedicated to a local church, I want to invite you to prepare your hearts to receive from him and to be reminded with joy and gratitude and reverence of what he has already accomplished and what is symbolized there at, Sinai, at the Zion. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not following Jesus, if you're not dedicated to a local church, I want to I ask you to abstain. And I want you to use this time to, to really think about the text this morning. Maybe you've heard this before, and I, I want you to know when I say it, it's, it's sincere. I would love to talk to you about how you can actually approach Zion. I would love for you to talk about that, but would you wait? There's nothing here. This is not the key. This is the reminder. And I'd love to talk to you about how to approach Zion. And so for now, as those of us who are in Christ, trusting in Jesus, I want to invite you to take some time for reflection. I want you to take some time for reflection. 
maybe you're here this morning and you say, hey, I've, I'm trusting in Jesus, and yet at the same time, there's sin in my life that I need to confess to God. There's probably not one of us here this morning that's not in that place. And so this is a great time to do it. Not so that we can hurry up and be made righteous, but because we already are righteous and we're coming to God, we're coming to the table and we want to do that with joy and with gratitude and not with guilt and shame. And so we confess those things because they're inconsistent. Those sins, they're inconsistent with what this symbolizes. That's part of that reverence. And so take some time, consider that. But also take some time right now to thank God. That's what we're to do. When we realize that we're coming to Zion that cannot be shaken, it cannot be taken away, it really should lead us to just give thanks to God. The nicest, greatest thing, treasure that you have in this life will one day burn up. When you die, it'll be taken to a yard sale and somebody else will buy it and they'll put it in their garage and then that, that person will die and it'll be taken to the dump. Everything that we have will burn up and be destroyed one day, but the kingdom of God will not. And so just take a moment and thank God that that's possible. You're part of that kingdom that will never go away, the nation that will never be destroyed because of what is symbolized here. And so let that gratitude and thankfulness just bubble over in your heart. But also take some time, maybe even now, to think about and pray for a brother or sister that you know needs encouraging right now. Why don't you just think of somebody right now that you know that needs to be encouraged. Think of that person right now. If you got somebody on your mind, just raise your hand real quick. Only a few of you thinking, okay, come on, keep them raised. Somebody else, think. If you don't have your hand raised, keep thinking. What would it look like for you to go to that person right now and pray with them? You say, well, that might, that might sound a little bit like a, like we're, you know, irreverent. Well, no, it might sound like Zion and not like Sinai. Taking a moment to say, I'm going to go pray with somebody. I'm going to go encourage somebody. I'm going to go confess some sin to somebody else and ask their forgiveness. I'm going to go to somebody else that has received a blessing that I've received, and I want to ask them to pray with me, and we're going we're gonna to thank God together in this moment right now. You know what that would sound like to me? That would sound like we really believe that we're at the base of Mount Zion and not at the base of Mount Sinai. And so I just want to invite you to take some time right now to shake off this staleness and the fear and really think about what these symbols are telling us today, what they're speaking to us right now. And let the Spirit of God move you to respond in a way that looks like we're at Zion. Take that time now.